The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. Sometimes it's fun and powerful to get back to the root of a word. Radical, for instance, doesn't mean revolutionary, at least not literally. It means in its Latin etymology, root, like the root of a plant. And in that sense, radical choices are often revolutionary, but because they aren't addressing the surface issues or symptoms, but getting at the thing at its most fundamental place. The word sabbatical is similar. Its Greek sabbaticos root is like its Latin root sabbaticus, which means the same thing, which is of or appropriate to the Sabbath. And Sabbath has at its root the Hebrew word Shabbat, later Shabbat, meaning day of rest. And that word we can trace back to the book of Genesis in the Hebrew scriptures to the story of creation in which God works very hard for six days creating light out of darkness, molding moons and planets and flinging stars, bringing waters down, and then filling the planet with all kinds of feathered and furry and finally human creatures. I remember in a children's RE class, early in my ministry, when I was reading this story to the kids, one of them raising his hand and me pointing to him and him asking, when were the dinosaurs created? Many things, it turns out, aren't specifically referenced in Genesis, but at the end of the making of dinosaurs and tarantulas and molds and paramecia too, God takes a day of rest and commands us to do likewise. Later interpretations of the text would add on to this notion of rest that another that comes in another batch of seven. It shows up in the book of Leviticus, among other places, which, as many of you know, if you've studied the Bible at all or just read criticism of it, it's the book that gives a lot of the laws that Jews and later Christians were supposed to live by, and it gets made fun of and criticized because of some of the things that appear in it. But there, has, there is some good stuff in Leviticus too, like in book 25, when God brings God's people to the land that will be theirs, but gives a couple of conditions. First, that they be commanded to rest one day a week, Sabbath, but also this, when you enter the land that I'm giving you, the land shall observe a Sabbath for the Lord. Six years shall you sow your field, and six years shall you prune your vineyard and gather in the yield. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard then. Every seven years, the land is given a rest. Every seven years, a field is left fallow. I'm not a farmer, but most of us know that 
a failure to rotate crops and rest the land to plant nitrogen-fixing plants in an off year and other good habits of stewardship have often gotten farmers everywhere into trouble. The Dust Bowl comes to mind. <laughs> and the idea is lovely, too. This idea that you plan for giving everything a rest. It was this idea that somehow got translated in, of all places, universities in the 1880s in the United States, and then churches too, this idea of a sabbatical for professors, and then I buy churches who served them. And it spread into other professions too, though not universally. Ministers in our tradition now get credited a month a year to take every five years. And some don't really know what to do with this benefit because it's so countercultural. I've known churches that have asked their ministers for plans for what they will accomplish in their five months. <laughs> what classes they will take, what books they will write, what rigorous training they will complete. I've always thought that missed the point completely. Sabbatical, as you now know too, if you didn't already, like Sabbath has its root, its origins in this idea of rest. Sabbatical is about valuing what happens when we let things on the surface lie fallow for a while. We all know a bit about fallow times and what happens in them. Although I think that maybe most of us learned more about what that was like, how it sat with us when we were children, at least when I was a kid and being bored wasn't a crime or a failure of the parents, when summers were full of dog days and you'd find yourself doing all kinds of things that only really bored kids do, like making mud pies or creating elaborate make-believe games or perhaps reading books. <laughs> Later though in life, fallow times, maybe get a little less permission to show up in our lives. There's less structure for them. And I think our country has a lot of distrust for fallow times. Idle hands or the devil's workshop. <laughs> when the Industrial Revolution was changing the productivity of labors, how much someone could get done, and before we realized that human beings would adjust our standard of living and consumption ever upward, pundits talked in the early 1900s of the problem of leisure, the problem of it. But the author of Genesis and the authors of Leviticus and others in other wise voices through time, I'm sure, knew the power of rest and fallow seasons. This past January was one month of my sabbatical and for me, the fallow time meant extra time with family in India and to read and indulge in the things I love, to graze 
in the mind and heart, you might say. And then the last week, as I've told some of you, I chose to do a long overdue and needed surgery. The surgery predicted a week of recovery time. And because of complications from anesthesia, that week was absolutely necessary, which meant that I spent a week largely in bed, fallow, you might say, <laughs> sleeping and musing under the landscape of sky that was just outside my window. It was like a sabbatical field. There's so much that being sick recalls us to. It recalls us into immediate relationship with our bodies in a particular way. It reminds us of how much this body so often does without much complaint, how little it asks. When we're sick, we're grateful for any healing that happens, for any help we get, for medicine, if we're lucky enough to be able to access it, for a place to lay our heads where we are safe and can rest, and for everyone that reaches out with care and concern and help even if we don't need it. So lying in bed, I thought a number of times about our pastoral care team. I thought about what incredible work they do, making sure folks get support and are remembered, coordinating food deliveries and rides to doctor's appointments. Often their work is quiet, so I'm making it a little less quiet. And if any of you want to be part of that work, from the weekly meetings and trainings and skills of pastoral care to just being on the auxiliary list like I am of I make an okay soup and can deliver it somewhere, then please reach out to the chaplains, chaplains at uusf.org. Getting a card from Laura Davis in the group, who I see sitting in the back, was so lovely, and texts from folks, it really mattered. Knowing if I needed a ride to an appointment, which I almost did, that they would spend time trying their best to find me one, it all mattered. There's a limit to what this group can do, though they are small and mighty, but they do a lot, and the more who join in, the better and stronger we will be in living this piece of our lives for one another. I was reminded of how much it does matter. And I was also reminded lying in bed of those I hadn't reached out to enough, though I knew they'd been struggling. Empathy. It might be one of the most important human feelings or capacities. Without it, we're in trouble. Psychopaths don't have empathy. Relationships rely on empathy. Motivation for radical change and ordinary healing companionship both depend on empathy, if you think about it. And what is empathy? 
it's this combination of experience that we draw on and imagination too, right? When we're being empathetic, we're projecting ourselves into someone else's life, drawing on what we know and asking and listening deeply to what they describe and trying to picture and feel what it might be to be walking in their shoes so that we can support them and be with them in their experience. It takes incredible amounts of energy, of emotional energy and time to be empathetic. It takes us being in touch with our experiences of pain, of body, of emotion, things that I think most of us are taught to soldier through in the bustle of life in its headlong tumble. And I think maybe pandemic made all of that a little bit worse. It's totally normal to shut down in traumatic circumstances and just get by a day at a time. And many of us did that, probably not even realizing that we were. It's normal, but the road to empathy, it begins in our own beings and this connection to ourselves. Parker Palmer, the Quaker educator, used to say that soul was like a wild animal. You had to sit quietly in the forest and wait for it to come out. Empathy is like that too, part of that. There's a lot of sitting and waiting and attending to our own deepest humanity. Yet that's where the capacity begins, the oxygen mask on our own faces. And frankly, almost all of the basic and shared spiritual practices across tradition, if you look at them, they're aimed in some way at this attention and intention this listening and awareness to that same space in us. Meditation, journaling, prayer, hiking, but not with a podcast to distract your mind. Think of it as all fallow field time. Or the beauty and purpose of a weekly Sabbath, the old school version that says you're not supposed to work, no laundry, no chores, just rest and reading and joy and time with loved ones and study and play, weekly restoration, fallow for a day. It's all about this same need we humans have and how easy we get distracted. Sabbath and sabbatical, all of it asks us these practices a larger question and plunge us into it of how do we find, you and me, how do we find and guard and allow ourselves the spaciousness to stay human and connected? It's so hard. Thoreau escaped to Walden to try and find it. Leviticus commanded rest. It's not just a problem of 2023. 
Foundational for humanity through time has been this notion of prioritizing spaciousness then, of how we give ourselves permission to find fallow spaces of listening and stillness. And what happens in the human heart, a reminder what happens in the human heart, in relationships, in the human mind, when we can let them wander or give them the time they need, like a field, like a plant, to come up from the ground where it's seemingly fallow but flourish in a way that we can't force, but it's vital to the gardens of our beings, you might say. It all takes time and permission. It's part of what I found myself sitting with in that bed under the, <laughs> under the sky outside the window. But also, just to be clear, Empathy in our lives, it also just requires that we slow down in really more micro and specific ways, ways that are just as hard to do and super nitty-gritty of each day. I was reminded in January of one other thing about empathy, which I'll throw into the pot to the conversation. I was reminded in January of the Good Samaritan experiment at Princeton Seminary in 1973. Does anyone know of that experiment? <laughs> so we know the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Someone's robbed, beaten, left by the side of the road. Two very religious people walk by and do nothing. I think it's two. And then comes the Samaritan, who is from a distrusted community, the enemy even, and that person stops and cares for the person by the side of the road and takes them to an inn and pays for their lodging so that the wounded and beaten person on the side of the road can get help. So good to know that story, because in the study in 1973, uh, seminarians were told to prepare to give a talk. Um, the talk would either be about job opportunities or the Good Samaritan story, and neither one of those made a difference. I think the results were pretty similar. But a third of the people were told that they should go across campus and go give this talk and that they were early, and a third were told they were right on time, and a third were told they were running late and chop, chop, better get there. And as they set out across campus, they passed by an actor who was lying in an alley, moaning and calling out for help. 63% of the people who were told they were running early stopped to help. 40% of the people on time stopped to help. 10% of those running late stopped. That was another reminder I had of the question of what gets in the way of empathy and connecting with people, people who need us to be connected to them, who we want to be connected to empathetically. Time isn't money. Time might be empathy. So how do we find the spaciousness, my friends, that we need to stay human and connected? An age-old question. 
It's the question that fallow time in a bed brought up for me. It's the question we have the challenge to live again and again. How do we find the spaciousness we need to stay human and connected? Fallow seasons, days, hours, time and attention and intention, practices of writing and breathing and walking, permission giving. With gratitude for everyone here who works hard to stay open and in relationship in ways that tend to the people around them and who do that so beautifully as all of us do. And with blessings for all the small things and the practices we keep in our lives to try and hold our hearts open and connected. May the work of fostering empathy in ourselves and in our world, may it be blessed because we need it and the world needs it too. Amen. I remember back around the late 80s or early 90s, I watched a documentary where marine biologists using a tiny new submarine attempted to reach the ocean's abyss, essentially the end of the earth. Excited as they were to get to their destination, the biologists had to control their speed, the speed of the descent in order to allow their bodies to acclimate. Their slow dive through the layers of the ocean had me on pins and needles. Down, down they went till they arrived at the ponderous darkness of the abyss. A cocoon of bright light surrounded their tiny vessel as it made its way around the inky blackness. Creatures never before seen by human eyes began to appear. Some approached the vessel timidly out of curiosity. Others floated by oblivious. The crew's joy at being there was imbued with a sort of sacred reverence as they moved in wide-eyed silence along the depths. After a while, they came across an enormous pink flower. They used their mechanical arm to clip it and bring it to the surface, but during the ascent, the change in pressure caused the flower to disintegrate. They found another one and tried again and again, moving at different speeds until at last they found the rhythm and successfully brought one to the surface. I was living in Texas back then, and one evening I went to a poetry reading at a local barbecue joint. There were a surprising number of poets on the bill, but it was a sultry summer night and the beer was flowing, so the crowd that had cheerfully stuffed itself into the restaurant's covered porch was happy to settle in for the evening. 
One of the last poets that night was a young man wearing preppy glasses and old cowboy boots. His face was already a panicky shade of pink when he got to the mic. Beads of sweat started forming on his upper lip as he contemplated the paper in his hand. It took him a moment to settle himself and find his voice. But when he did, the poem was extraordinary. I can still remember some of the imagery, the poet as a child sitting with his dad under a sycamore tree, both of them looking up at the night sky. I fell head over heels for him. We started seeing each other and it became clear that he wasn't just skittish about public speaking. He was also skittish about commitment. I told him about the deep sea documentary I had watched about how rushing had damaged the flowers so we could take things slow and try not to damage our budding connection. Fortunately, he liked this story. He started writing me love letters and signed them with the word time. We were still together four years later. He was in Texas finishing his master's in creative writing and I'd moved to New York to study acting. We were quite busy, but we would make sure to call each other at least once a week to check in. After a while, when I casually looked through pictures and letters he sent, I'd come across the word time written in his familiar scribble and it began to tug at me. I wondered if maybe our process of gentle, intuitive becoming had gone a little too far and had been hijacked somewhere along the way by a type of sweet neglect. But there was nothing passive about our relationship. Neither of us was wilting. In fact, we were thriving. We were exactly where we wanted to be doing the thing we were meant to do. Maybe that was it. Maybe that was the source of the tugging I felt. We had given ourselves over to time. And in return, time, time rewarded us with a true love, an uninhibited love, one that honored the mysterious unfolding of the other. We had found perfect rhythm. We had successfully brought our flower to the surface and this is what it looked like. Him in Texas and me in New York. So that tugging, I was acclimating to the reality that our time together beautiful as it was, had reached its end. Mm -hmm.